1: Hey there, hello and hallelujah, good people of the internet. Greg Carlwood here, and it is not often anymore that I preface these episodes with any sort of preamble unless we do something out of the ordinary, and I think today sort of qualifies for that. Firstly, you might remember that we've had Patrick Jordan on once before, where we did what I thought was one hell of a show about his research into the medical machine as a weapon, both in modern times and distant eras that are much more surprising. And I do enjoy Patrick's perspective. It is one of the most extreme positions I've heard someone take on this show when it comes to issues like this. And I salute him for that rebelliousness. But what's different about today is that we're also joined by Annette, who is a member of his research group he calls the Little Red Hens. Just regular folks studying and researching as best they can out of personal interest and dedication to seeking out these hidden truths. And having Annette join us was a real treat because she's been through the medical ringer firsthand. She's seen one condition turn into another, get treated by pharmaceuticals that make the problem worse, and then new things go wrong, etc., etc. And she's going to tell you all about it. But I'm sure we all know someone in our circles who has similar experiences, and it's very sad to see. But from a podcast production perspective, hearing a person's personal medical history can be a bit dry. I'm aware of that. But in Annette's sections, I think she describes a template that, while the details are pretty personal and specific, tends to represent a big chunk of Americans. Especially our aging friends and family. And I thank her for making the effort to be on the line. I know it wasn't particularly easy as she's still dealing with so much in the way of her health. It is kind of a lot to ask them to speak about this stuff on air. But it's all firsthand validation that Patrick has some things right. So I think her presence is important and adds a layer of credibility to the overall case. Plus, I wanted to say that as you start listening, you might hear some bad lags in Patrick's connection, but I had us all reestablish the call after a few minutes, and luckily we cleared that issue right up. So do not worry, it is not the whole show. And as you know, THC has a lengthy editing process where we try to make these conversations as fluid and engaging as we can, but I do hope content-wise it's all good food for thought and some added perspective for your own models. I know it was kind of exciting for them because they brought to the table some research and findings that they have not spoken about publicly anywhere, really, and the implications are pretty epic. So that's really all. I just wanted to set you up with some context now that I've finished this episode, but I don't want to start repeating things that I say in the actual intro, so let's just dive into it right after I resurrect a little bumper music that we don't get to use much anymore. Enjoy.
2: and park it, tune in and spark it Cause Greg's about to open up your mind Armed with information about the secret manipulation And the wisest aficionados he can find And he's pulling back the curtain on what we thought we knew for certain So we can
0: see the world with a brand new set of eyes
1: Sweet Sola people, how we doing? From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood. And over the years, we've been unpacking many unconventional boxes. From 5G and the five-pointed star to Archons, Aliens, and AI. But one of my favorite conspiratorial categories has become those things that reside within the medical sphere. Because to realize the dark wizards of the Western medical monopoly are not your friends at all is a dark and startling thing to come to grips with. But should we be that surprised when we turn our wartime chemical companies into the faces of big pharma and food production? When we let oil tycoons sweep nature under the rug and offer up oil-only solutions? When we go to a hotbed of mad German scientists conducting human experimentation, psychological torture, and eugenics campaigns and give them jobs running our system? Well, when you reflect on some of these questions, the denial starts to wash away and you start to see that this couldn't have really turned into anything but the big mess we have today. Put all this under the capitalist umbrella and the words of Chris Rock ring truer than ever, there ain't no money in the cure, the money's in the comeback. And within this overall context, we have many smaller sagas full of injected bovine proteins, monkey viruses, regulatory capture, people in pain, and good doctors suspended which is all in the mix of today's medical microcosm, the topic of Lyme disease. And who better to break it all down than returning guest Patrick Jordan, because Patrick has been breaking down the attack that is modern medicine for years. He's written over a dozen books on the subject, including ICD-999, Vaccine-Induced Diseases, the Chronic Serum Sickness Postulate, which we talked about last time, as well as titles like Operator's Manual for the Human Body, Assaulted, and Same Pig, Different Lipstick. He also runs the website VaccineFraud.com, and you know he had to snag that domain early. Joining him today is his good friend and fellow researcher Annette, someone who's been listening to THC for several years, helped me to first get Mr. Jordan on the show, and unfortunately has been through the ringer of the medical machine. She's dealt with the devil over antidepressants and has also been diagnosed with lupus, for which she's been working with Patrick to treat as a manifestation of Lyme disease with some success. I think this is going to be some powerful eye-opening stuff, so let's do it. Patrick and Annette, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you very much, Greg. It's good to be here. Thanks, Greg. I really appreciate this. You actually
2: have the scoop on us releasing, other than my low viewership, YouTube of concepts, major concepts, that are going to absolutely destroy medicine and alternative medicine for all time. So this, for me, is a big show, and I appreciate you having us on.
1: Wow. Wow. Yes, I am honored to play a small role in getting the word out. And Patrick, so we've done this once before, and just to give people a little reminder, we talked about your position that medicine has always been a military offensive operation, not about helping people the reason battlefields were always so full of disease is that soldiers were given injections so that even if they died out, they would still keep killing in a sense, you know, once they've been injected. That's something that really stuck out to me. But the overall theme was that many, many of these conditions we call disease come actually from vaccine reactions, sometimes even decades later. This is all a creation of the system. And my second question will go to Annette, but Patrick, how do you frame up this conversation about Lyme disease?
2: Okay, it came to us, and that's why I want to make Annette and her screen name as one of the little red hands that's part of my unpaid research team. We were working on her health for about three years, and we got her to a certain level of health when she decided to, on her own, taper from antidepressants. And in that process, it unmasked lupus. From lupus, we divined, so to speak, that there was a connection with Lyme. And so what I have done over the years is developed a theory called continuum, that everything is connected to everything else. And Louis Pasteur, who I think is an insane monster, he had a paraphrased quote, that goes, chance favors a prepared mind. So as we were working with Annette, and that's why I want to make her center stage here, as we were working with her, we were able to deconstruct all of medicine and alternative medicine to the point where everything that I had studied and was taught since 1978 completely went out the window. And we collectively, the Red Hens and I, have been learning biophysics from the ground up only because we had to throw out all the lies. And I actually forgot what your question was.
1: <laughs> well, it was just about <laughs> framing things up, which you did quite well. Okay, good. <laughs> so, Annette, you can jump in here as well. Uh, you know, how did you get involved with Patrick's research group, and how have you felt in your firsthand experience that this? treatment alternative has been working as opposed to what was offered up from the medical
3: machine? Well, I first discovered Patrick while listening to Clint Richardson when he was on RBN radio. It's really synchronistic because my son's name was Patrick and my mother's maiden name was Jordan. I loved his personality. I loved his knowledge. I loved his insight into medicine and prion disease and his whole philosophy vaccine fraud issues and all of that i really appreciated that so i checked out his website and found out that he did consults and i was having a lot of health issues so i contacted him and told him how i'd learned of him and we started working together September of 2015, so it's been three and a half years now almost. Did a complete bio of my medical history. I was a really very sickly child. I had really bad asthma. This was back in the 50s before there were asthma drugs. There weren't any albuterol inhalers or cortisone inhalers or any of that type of stuff. And I grew up in the Houston area on the east side of Houston, close to the Houston Ship Channel. And that is where there's so much, all the oil refineries. And there's a lot of, during that time at night, they would let out all of the crap that was created during the day and it filled the air. Mm. And in the fifties, there was no air conditioning, (laughs) So sleeping at night with the window open, I would get really, really sick in the middle of the night and have to be rushed to the emergency room to get a shot of adrenaline because I couldn't breathe. So all of my problems started out when I was very young with asthma. And one of the things that Patrick and I discovered during our consultation together was that I probably didn't really have allergies and asthma per se it was more a mast cell disorder and mast cells M A S T the mast cell controls the release of histamine and so that was one of the first big breakthroughs in my health was discovering that all of the antihistamines that I'd been taking over the years all of the allergy testing that I'd had over the years allergy shots. None of that helped me. And Annette, let me interrupt for a second. Sure. Tell everybody how long you had been taking antihistamines with absolutely no relief. Most of my life, about 40 years. Mm. 40 years of a poison
2: with no results. We came across the idea of mast cell disorder. And I suggested it to Annette and I said, hey, how about we pursue this avenue of treatment remedy because there's certain things I can't say because I'm not a doctor and I can't give medical advice. So it's like, okay, we found mast cell stabilization remedies and you tell them how it worked, you know, how
3: many grams you're taking per day and how many you're taking now. Well, when I first started taking the mast cell stabilizer, which it's a natural bioflavonoid that's found abundantly in onion. It's called quercetin, Q-U-E-R-C-E-T-I-N. Is that correct, Patrick? Yep. Okay. The max limit is you can take up to eight grams a day. And I was taking between six and eight grams a day. I would take like 1,500 milligrams three or four times a day to keep my allergies in check. And I'm at a point now to where I I take two in the morning. I take a thousand milligrams a day is all. And I don't even really feel that I need those, but I take it just to be on the safe side. But I really have no allergy problems, no sneezing. The horrible allergy symptoms that I had experienced most of my life have pretty much gone away with this natural bioflavonoid. Hmm.
2: And so 1,000 milligrams is 10 grams. So she's on one-eighth of the dose that she needed to stabilize her condition. And it worked famously for Granny Annie. I love to call her that because Mm -hmm. that's her screen name. (laughs) So it worked, you know, really well for her. But another one of our people had tried quarter teaspoon of Corsetin And it just about made her pass out. So the thing that is, is individual tailoring of whatever it is that you need to get from point A to point B. So everything that we say is not going to work for everybody all the time. And Mm -hmm. that's the one thing that alternative medicine does not do. They will push something like quercetin, like it's the second coming, and never give you, like I just did, the other side of the coin that it may not be for everybody.
1: Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And so, Annette was diagnosed with lupus. And Annette, you sent me a lot of overall material on really the Lyme disease situation. And it seems like this guy, Dr. Alan McDonald, was a real pioneer here. But while the media gets us all hyped up about Ebola or the bird flu, (laughs) Lyme is actually infecting tens of thousands a year. And and that's unofficially because if Dr. McDonald and you guys are correct – People who have MS, lupus, ALS, Parkinson's, and Alzheimer's might all be dealing with the Lyme spirochete, which is could be thought of maybe as like a parasite. And so it's going to affect different areas of the body differently wherever it wants to go. So that number might really be in the hundreds of thousands because there's all these misreportings going on when it is a single cause, which is this Lyme spirochete. Is that right?
3: Correct. Yes. The CDC in the past admitted to like 30,000 new cases a year. They've now gone up to about 300,000 cases a year. And according to Dr. McDonald, it's closer to 900,000 cases per year. Mm. And the documentary Under Our Skin, they list it as close to about eight or 900,000 cases a year.
2: Mm. Greg, what I would like to do is to bring the audience up in a stepwise fashion, because it's not that you jumped the gun, but you brought us into Alan McDonald. And of all the physicians, because he was a forensic medical examiner, of all the physicians of all the world, he blew the lid off of what Lyme is. Now, Lyme is not just Borrelli's body. He proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that when a tick bites you, in its spit, and I'll give you the laundry list later, but among the things that a tick injects into the victim are things called filarial worms, and they are tiny. They are tiny little round worms. They're nematodes, and they actually act as like the taxi or the city bus for Borrelia, and nematode burrows into the spinal cord, it can get into the cerebral spinal fluid. It can either set up there or get into the brain. And some people, you know, especially the Lyme people, will know the word neuroborreliosis, meaning that the spirochete alone. Nobody's talking about the worms. That's like the elephant in the room. Nobody's talking about the worms, but they talk about the neuroborreliosis from the spirochete organism, and that means that you're insane in the membrane. Now, what I would like to do is tie that in, in that people will have not just physical manifestations, but psychiatric manifestations. And so dating all the way back to 1978, I was developing this theory of somatopsycho origin of disease. Now, we're always taught psychosomatic. And all that I did was an opposite day, and I turned it around, and I've been able to prove it. Disease and even mental, emotional, and psychiatric manifestations can have their sole root in the physical. So it's not mental. There's not anything wrong with your head. There's something wrong with your body, and it's manifesting through the way you present the world. It could be anywhere in your body, literally any organ, any tissue, and sometimes like with the filarial worms and the Borrelia, it can literally be in your brain. So what I want to do with that then. And this is important. I mean this is one of the biggest concepts that we have to get out today is Annette was not only having physical problems with her allergies and all of that. She actually got onto things like antidepressants and anti-anxiety drugs and if she could pick up the narrative there I'm going to blow the lid
3: off of what all that means.
1: That sounds great. Perfect.
3: Okay. I married very young and had a child at the age of 18. And my obstetrician at the age of 18, after having a child, prescribed for me Librium, which was kind of a precursor to benzodiazepines, Valium. Ativan, Xanax, all of those type drugs. He said, you know, being a young new mother, you might be overwhelmed some days. So take this anti-anxiety drug to help you. Well, I mean, this was 1969, 50 years ago. And doctors were our friends. Doctors were gods. Doctors were wonderful people, you know. So you take the drug that the doctor gives you. And then once Valium became the drug of choice and given out like candy, I was given Valium. And it's something that I've had on hand since I was 18 years old. I didn't take it every day, but I had it around in case I had a bad day. And then 15 years ago, I had a really bad family upheaval. I wanted to go talk to a psychologist to talk through the pain and the issues. But insurance doesn't pay for psychologists usually, so they sent me to a psychiatrist.
1: And that's because the psychiatrist can prescribe drugs, correct?
3: Correct, yes. Mm -hmm. They're really bad at talking, but they're really good at handing out prescriptions. Mm -hmm. And I was put on Effexor, which is a norepinephrine serotonin reuptake inhibitor, an NSRI. And they say they're not addictive. And they're not addictive in the way like opium is addictive. But you still become dependent on them because getting off of them is really, really difficult because having the serotonin readily available, it prevents it from reuptaking. It keeps it at the brain level, so that it's always available to the brain. So trying to get off of it and reducing the amount of serotonin in the brain causes what is called brain zaps. The brain has to start working again and trying to grab hold of the serotonin rather than it always being there at the ready for the brain to use. And these brain zaps, they drive you crazy. I mean, it's really, really difficult to get off of these drugs because of those brain zaps. And people just, they'll try and they'll give up. But I never found that the antidepressants didn't help me. I wasn't depressed. I was angry. I was upset. So I tried several times to get off of them without success. I'd get to a certain point and the brain zaps would just become too overwhelming to deal with. But after the 15-year upheaval and taking the antidepressants, Valium became a big problem. I don't know if you remember the movie, I'm Dancing As Fast As I Can, because they discovered how addictive Valium was. Mm. So they created more benzos that were supposed to be less addictive. And one of the next benzos they created was Ativan which was supposed to be less addictive and less harmful. But these drugs have half-lives. And Valium has a very long half-life, so it stays in your body a long time. Ativan has a very short half-life and only stays in your body maybe 24 hours. And I only took Ativan at night to help me sleep along with Ambien. So, I mean, I was on like a triple cocktail of really bad pharmaceuticals that no one should take because they're just so harmful. What had happened, I started withdrawing from all of my hobbies, everything that I enjoyed. I became agoraphobic. I hardly left the house. Life just held nothing for me anymore. I didn't know what was wrong. I didn't discuss it with anyone but Patrick because I felt no one would understand or would think I was crazy. And this went on for close to a year. And that was when I decided, okay, I'm going to get off the antidepressants. I thought that was the problem. It took a long time. I tapered very, very slowly. And that's something that's very important for people to understand. Never, ever go cold turkey off of any of these pharmaceutical drugs because it could cause you to want to kill yourself. I tapered very, very slowly off of these. It took me probably close to nine months. But unfortunately, that didn't solve my agoraphobia, my apathy, my lack of motivation. And I was on the phone with Patrick, and he said, Annette, I don't think you're going to feel yourself again until you get off the Ativan, the benzodiazepine. And I said, Patrick, I just don't see how I can do that right now. I just got off of the antidepressants. And he said, well, sounds like addiction to me. And I always felt that I had a dependence on these drugs, but I never felt addicted. And addicted is really a trigger for me because I had a son that was a drug addict. and. A couple of days later, that statement just really upset me. And I got on the Internet and started researching. And I discovered this fantastic website, www.benzo.uk.org. And it's a United Kingdom, British website, Professor Heather Ashton. And it's called the Ashton Method. And I looked through that website and discovered everything that had been happening to me. And I discovered that I had thrown myself into withdrawal from Anavan because I wasn't taking enough of it. I was only taking it at night. And I had thrown myself into withdrawal. And all of the symptoms, the agoraphobia, the lack of motivation, the withdrawal from hobbies and things that i used to enjoy i stopped cooking for myself all of these things fit what happened and the solution per the ashton method is to switch from the short half life ativan which the generic name is lorazepam switch back to valium which the ge- generic name is diazepam and taper from there Luckily, I had a very caring primary care physician. I sent her this information and she agreed to work with me. So I saw her mid April and so she wrote the prescription out for Valium. There are taper schedules on the Ashton, on the benzo.uk.org website that tell you how to slowly taper. Also, I was taking like two to three milligrams of Ativan at night. I didn't realize that one milligram of Ativan was equivalent to 10 milligrams of Valium. Mm. So when the doctor switched me over, she, she gave me 30 milligrams of Valium a day to take. Well, my body, they react very differently. Ativan is very subtle. I never felt sleepy or I mean, like if I took it during the day, I never felt altered. But when I started taking Valium again, it altered me considerably. 10 milligrams made me feel like a drunk person. So it was very easy to taper quite quickly. So I started mid-April. And by June, I was back to myself again. In fact, I felt better than I'd felt in ages. My motivation was back. Life became meaningful again. I started getting out more. I started back in on my research, my quote conspiracy theory stuff that I love so much, Mm. and contacted family, and I felt fantastic. But I had an old back injury from an auto accident from when I was a teenager. I had a bad whiplash. And from time to time over the years, Even though I was 16 when that happened, I would have really bad back problems. But I would go and get a massage or two, and it would resolve it for months. Well, the backache just got worse and worse, and I called my former massage therapist who comes to the house. I had eight massages in the time frame of about two months. And the back pain just got worse and worse. It didn't help. In fact, it was probably making things worse. That was before I had the lupus diagnosis.
2: And so let me interrupt here for a second. What we see from Annette's story is that she was on drugs like antihistamines for 40 years. It didn't help. All she wanted was counseling, and she was given drugs, antidepressants, anti-anxieties, and they didn't help. In fact, they not only addicted her, but were listed as non-addictive. She couldn't get off of the damn things because they almost had a mind of their own. They have a way of regulating receptor sites in the brain. So even if you're flooded with serotonin, if you have more receptor sites than you have serotonin, even during the taper, you have to genetically down-regulate those receptor sites or you are going to feel depressed, even if still coming off the, and I call them smart drugs. It's almost as if the drug has methods and an intent to keep the person hooked on that drug. So she was really deep into the talons of the pharmaceutical capture, and she was doing her best effort to get away from it, and one of the things that I've seen across the board, everybody that I work with, is the more healthy you get over time, the more you actively and even unconsciously pursue healthful behaviors. So, although I had always encouraged Annette to get off of pharmaceuticals, it was her personal action to get off of the NSRIs, hmm. and then. That's when we had the conversation where I said, mm, you know, you really need to get off of everything. And I said, it sounded like addiction to me. And that changed her entire perspective. So she went out and she did the research again. This was all her to prove me wrong. I'm not addicted. And she found out as she had indicated that everything she was experiencing was an artifact of the drug. And because she was getting healthier over time. She made the decision to get off the drug. Well, drug doesn't want to let you go. And again, they say that they're not addictive, but the adivan was 10 times more powerful than Valium. Well, that's a recipe for addiction right there. And so as she was coming off of these drugs, and now here is the biggest idea that we were promoting in a series on lupus, and Lyme, and my video on YouTube called Revolution, is that we discovered quite by accident, we were just trying to get Annette better. But in that pursuit, Annette had gotten to a really good point in her health, and she had said that she had never felt emotionally better in her entire life. Yet, as she was weaning from the benzodiazepines after getting off the NSRIs, that new physical problems were emerging. And even as myself and the red hands were trying to get to the bottom of it, it was really beyond the scope of our understanding. And so she had a physician, probably the only doctor that I've ever known of, that was not a white-coated assassin. And he did the autoimmunity test that revealed lupus. And this is the big idea right here. This is the thing that you're scooping the world on, Greg. Okay. Is that we discovered, because of this process, that all of the antidepressant and anti-anxiety drugs, they're all immunosuppressant agents. So they're the same thing as like an anti-rejection drug. Hmm. So she may have had, and, you know, we do regressions with people. We'll bring them all the way back to their earliest years when we take a history. And the we, you know, it's a collaborative between me and my consult. We'll go all the way back to like when Annette was four years old and she had a tick in her ear. Wow. We'll come forward in time to when she was rescuing... Of feral cats, and she got bit probably to the bone by a wild cat.
4: Hmm.
2: And so, when did she get Lyme? We don't know, but we do know that when she got off of the antidepressants, started to taper from the anti-anxiety medications, that all of a sudden this disease, literally, that had to have always been there, smoldering was finally unmasked Hmm. and that is the big idea that it doesn't matter what the mental and emotional impact of these drugs are that's secondary to the fact that they are purposely immunosuppressant and that means that they can then hide any disease they want in us and it will be beyond the detection of anybody that doesn't even know to look for Wow so her doc I'll let you tell the story He ran a Sjogren's panel on her because she had certain symptoms and it didn't show up Sjogren's, it showed up lupus.
1: So, and just to jump in here, so what you're saying is these antidepressants that almost everyone knows someone who's taken them, they're suppressing the immune system to the point that infections that the immune system is keeping at bay, maybe for years, it allows them to come to the surface now.
2: Exactly. We'll go with that. Tell him about your ENT and how we actually
3: discovered this, because if we didn't have his help, we would have been lost. My ENT, I discovered him because I had, back in 2002, I was diagnosed with thyroid eye disease, which is another autoimmune disease, and I have I apologize for interrupting, but autoimmunity, because we are going to jump into that one, too. Right. It's a strange disease. It's fairly rare. And it attacks the muscles behind the eyes. And it causes them to protrude forward. So your eyes protrude forward. My eyes were always my best feature, and it almost destroyed them. I had to wear sunglasses because I scared small children in grocery stores. Oh. It's supposed to last from 18 months to maybe three years. Mine started in 2002. I had to have a thyroidectomy trying to get my thyroid under control so I could have additional treatment to my eyes. So I had the thyroidectomy in September of 2003, and then shortly after that, I had a series of radiation treatments on my eyes trying to stop the inflammation, but that didn't help me. So this disease went on for quite a few years, and I discovered early 2009 that they were stable enough for me to have surgery. And the surgery is extremely invasive. It's called an orbital decompression. And my ENT and my eye surgeon, who's a plastic surgeon, orbit specialist, went in. And what they have to do is they cut little slits at the outer corner of each eye, remove bone at the temple area. They water drill it to scale it down, put it back, and that way my eyes fall back to a more normal position. It's a very invasive surgery, but luckily the eyes heal very quickly. So it put my eyes back in a normal position so they didn't bulge and protrude and scare small children. But then I required five additional surgeries on my eyes so my sight was proper again. I had double vision. I had blurred vision. So I had all of these surgeries between 2009 and 2010.
2: Can I interrupt here for a second? You got your flow. Because what I want to impress on everybody listening is you're not giving a laundry list of, well, I went through this and I went through that, and they seem to be unrelated. Within our world of continuum, Annette had just cited that she had an autoimmune condition and we are going to tie this autoimmunity to the entire scope of lupus, which has autoantibodies. And we're going to tie it back to Lyme and its entire constellation of diseases and show that she had fulminating disease that was related to one singular thread and that it affected all these systems. So it's not just like, okay, and I had a thyroid problem, and I had an eye problem, and I had depression, and I had allergies. No, it was one thing under one enormous umbrella, Mm. and they were all discernible, because I want to emphasize something. Annette graduated high school. Annette, help me out here. Were you the candy striper, or did you work as a nurse's aide? I was a candy striper. And a candy striper. And I bill myself as just a farm boy. I went to college twice, never graduated. I have no degrees. And yet we were able to destroy the entire myth of mainstream and alternative medicine by showing this continuum that all of these conditions were related possibly to one cause. That one cause, and you know, we have stated earlier in this interview was a military weapon. And that it manifested itself in multiple ways, yet everybody within the medical world, alternative or mainstream, they will look at each separate incident as if they were completely unrelated. Right. So go ahead, Annette.
1: What was it that your ENT really brought to the table that really like was the aha moment for you guys and connected the research?
2: And that was the testing. So take it up there, Annette, where he did the testing for autoantibodies.
3: Well, one of the first symptoms I had was when I started off of the antidepressants. I started getting really bad dry mouth. And I talked to my doctor. She didn't know what was going on. I went to the dentist to see if they could help me. Everybody was pretty much like, well, you just have dry mouth, deal with it but it kept getting worse. It kept changing and it was really affecting my quality of life. I had trouble eating certain foods. I was creating a lot of mucus in my mouth. Even though my mouth was dry, I had a lot of mucus. So I contacted my former ENT and he's not covered under my insurance. And he's so kind and caring. He's still in the Bay Area. I'm in Sacramento. So it's like a hour and a half drive to get to him, he said, Annette, he said, I will see you for free, which is just unheard of. So I went to see him back on August 3rd, and he didn't really have any answers for me. He did a complete ENT exam endoscopically, checking my throat, checking my sinus passages for polyps and, you know, the whole gamut of an ENT exam. He said, I don't really have any answers for you. But he said, has anyone ever mentioned to you Sjogren's? And Sjogren's disease is another autoimmune disease. And one of its main symptoms is dry mouth. So he sent me back to my primary care doctor with a list of blood tests to do. And it was the Sjogren's test that does several anti-nuclear antibody testing for quite a few different autoimmune diseases and the one that showed up was lupus. A value of 10 is definitive. My value was 28. Really extreme case of lupus. And that's when we started our research into what lupus was, and it affects everybody differently, and it can affect all organ systems.
2: And I can explain that, too. Keep going, that. I can explain
3: everything. Go ahead. So it gave me a starting point. I knew what was wrong, but they send you to a rheumatologist if you have lupus. So it's put under the umbrella of rheumatology. Which is joints and arthritis. Right, right.
2: And everybody that is in the Lyme world will understand the meaning of that instantaneously because the CDC has committed a crime in defining Lyme as just Borrelia
3: and just a swollen knee. They're calling it lupus. They're calling MS. They're calling Alzheimer's. They're calling fibromyalgia. And all of these are emerging diseases. None of these diseases existed in my grandparents' day. And during all of our research, we discovered the connection to Lyme disease. Once you hear Lyme and start researching Lyme, you find YouTube after YouTube. We found Dr. Alan McDonald. YouTube is just full of videos about Lyme disease. The stellar ones are Lyda Matman, the
2: world's foremost expert on spirochetes, but then there's a whole bunch of people in the veterinary community because literally the vets are coming down with Lyme, Mm. and they're scared. And if I said the word scared to death, it's like, yeah, and they're even dying from it. So if I can just interject here at a moment, Annette, one of the things that set us off was Annette was diagnosed clinically with anti-DNA antibodies. And I go, how the hell can that be? So we started looking at it. And what I want to offer to you, Greg, and your listeners is if anybody needs supporting material, of course, I did a YouTube on this called Revolution. But if you need it in print, if you need citations, I will provide them to anybody that asks. But we found the actual smoking gun clinical evidence that, number one, the antidepressants and anti-anxieties were immunosuppressants. That means that she was smoldering with this disease for who knows how long. She had always had it, but it never manifested physically. And then you come up to the fact that it was an autoimmune condition, an anti-DNA antibody, and we have to destroy these myths. Because you can't be immune to your own DNA. Hmm. So when you find out that that is set in stone, it's like, then what DNA has this antibody been formed to? And that's a very pregnant question because we are being injected with vaccines that have free form DNA and RNA from countless organisms. Right. It can't be filtered out. It will always be in there. So were the antibodies from a vaccine or were they provoked by a tick bite and all the sequela that happens from that? You can't be immune to your own DNA. And one of the reasons is because these antibodies can't get into your own cells. Mm-hmm. So if they can't get into your own cells, then how can you call it autoimmunity? Because the antibodies would have to grab onto something and invite white blood cells or even red blood cells, because they're voracious, to destroy it. And so where is this destruction happening and why? Well, this is the amazing part, is when we went looking at lupus, The first place that I went to was my pathophysiology book by Wilson and Price that takes us all the way back to 2008 that was the catalyst for me understanding serum sickness. So this very book that started my media career 10 years ago brought us full circle from lupus to Lyme, and it showed us that The process of destruction in autoimmunity is exactly what is serum sickness. They're circulating immune complexes. And, you know, I'm using big language, let's break it down. It would be an antigen, which means against life, something that doesn't belong in your body, and an antibody, which is something that is created by your body to bind to that so that it can be broken down and excreted. Well, they're not breaking down. They're actually sticking onto cells, and then the body comes by and goes, "Ooh, look at that mess! I better burn that out."
4: Because mm. the
2: body has only one trick, and it's to burst oxygen at stuff. So when it bursts oxygen at this thing that it says you don't belong here, you can have collateral damage, and so then you get tissue damage. So a lot of people with lupus have lupus nephritis. Well. That's caused because you've got these circulating immune complexes embedded in your kidney tubules. Your immune system goes, hey, that doesn't belong there, and it starts just shooting at random, and next thing you know, your kidneys are destroyed. So we have just, right now, destroyed a bunch of myths, but this is how we deconstructed the connection with lupus and Lyme from my pathophysiology book. It says, Of the 11 things that you can tell whether or not you got Lyme, that it is an immunological disorder, a positive lupus erythematosus LE cell test, a positive anti DNA test, an anti SM test, or here we go, a false positive serological test for syphilis. Hmm. That single sentence is what put us on the road. Bear in mind, we're talking about lupus. and that was clinically diagnosed as having anti-DNA antibodies. So she met the criteria. They were calling it lupus. But if you can get a false test for syphilis, what is syphilis? It's a spirochete. What is Borrelia? Falsely labeled as Lyme because Lyme can be like 11 different things. Borrelia is a spirochete. That put us on the trail, and then here we go. This is what Annette has been leading up to. They have diseases that have names. And when you look up those diseases, they go, well, this is the disease. This is how it progresses, but we don't know what causes it. Why? Because they're covering up for a World War II bioweapon. It's a cover-up. This is a military operation. So, when you have things, and let me do the laundry list for you. I'll do it really quick. I'll tell you what comes in tick spit. This comes from, like we said earlier, the filarial worms that are the taxis for Borrelia, which are spirochetes, which that's the same phyla of syphilis. Then you have Bartonella, which is cat scratch fever, that can get into your red blood cells and it eats collagen and it makes biofilm, then what I call northern malaria of babesia, because, you know, you got your tropical malaria, and everybody knows that, you know, you get the shivers and shakes, and you got to take quinine or something, and, you know, you never really get over it. Gracefully, you might die from it. That can infect red blood cells. And if you take the magnesium that people are pushing like used car salesmen, and you get night sweats at night, you might have babesia. Hmm. So this stuff crosses over on so many thresholds. And uh, hold on, because I'm making a point with this. Also in tick spit, you can have ehrlichia, which is a rickettsia, and a plasma that's a bacteria. And that you can just get from eating hamburger that they sell in North America that came from South America. And along with all this stuff, this is tick spit. So it's indiscriminate. It's drawing out your blood and it's spitting into saliva along with Epstein-Barr virus, cytomegalovirus, HHV6 and 8, which are called roseola, and God knows what else. The list can go on forever. But the thing that is, is back in the day when they were labeling and trying to understand syphilis, they called it the great imitator because the symptoms appeared to be like other diseases. They're calling Lyme and only implicating the spirochete Borrelia, the great imitator, which of course, and here we go again, Greg, this is one of the biggest scoops in medicine and alternative medicine. That's one of the biggest lies going because it's not just Borrelia. I just gave you a handful of diseases, literal diseases that come in with tick spit, and every one of them causes a discrete physiological disruption of the body. So everything they're saying, well, here's your disease, here's the name, and we don't know what causes it, is because it's a cover-up. They know exactly what causes it, and they don't want you to know. And so Lyme is not the great imitator. Lyme is the great cover-up because they're labeling only Borrelia, ignoring everything else, and all these modern diseases can be tracked back to not just a tick bite. So here's the other big thing. There's overwhelming evidence that anybody that has Lyme is now a carrier, and you can transmit it by any body fluid, any body fluid. It is a communicable disease. And so the figures that you guys were talking about earlier, where it could be upwards of 900,000 people a year showing up with this condition, Let's just round it up to a million or more.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: It is a contagious military weapon.
1: Right. And so I did want to talk about that a little bit because the conspiracy is that Lyme disease came from the bioweapons lab on Plum Island. And I just wanted to talk about that a little more before we get into the second half of the show. But Annette, you sent me a little video regarding this connection between the Plum Island facility, and Lyme. In it, they talk about a few things. First, the initial case can be tracked to a tick bite in the woods, right on the other side of the coast, just nine miles from the facility. So proximity is in play. But 90% of the cases are from states in the New England area. The history of Plum Island biowarfare goes back to World War II and Project Paperclip. There have been whistleblower scientists that have said, yes, we release some altered ticks into the wild. And also apparently 60% of chronic Lyme patients are also infected with several strains of something called mycoplasma, including a strain of microplasma fermentants or something like that. But if you look that up, it's patented by the US Army apparently. So <laughs> there are a lot of leads that suggest this isn't natural, but Okay, people might be listening and say, well, yeah, I mean, it looks like a lot of bad things can happen from a tick bite, but what are you supposed to do? Ticks are out there. Can we make, a, is there anything else to say to make the case that this isn't just something that's in natural tick spit, that this is engineered?
2: Let's take a look at just the spirochete, because that's what everybody focuses on. So they say, okay, Borrelia is a spirochete just like syphilis. And it's like, really? Okay, let's take a look at what's called the homology, which means what is similar in the genetic makeup of syphilis compared to Borrelia. And so there's weird things going on in bacteria. They can have a nucleus where typically the DNA is stored. And the nuclear DNA of Borrelia has only 46% homology with syphilis. So it's not even halfway like it. Okay, that brings up a red flag to begin with. But the thing that puts it over the edge is this crazy critter has three membranes. Basically, I look at it as a blade of armor. So if I was going to create a bug in the laboratory, I would make it into one tough little son of a gun. And so it's got three membranes protecting it. And then inside are plasmids. So, those are circular DNA, and those are highly infectious. And those things have 90% of their genetic makeup that is comparable to no other life form on the planet. And so, a lot of the work that I do, Greg, is synthesis. And so, without being able to say, oh, yeah, and there's a patent for this, tracing all the way back to Plum Island where they made these plasmids, you know, some smoking gun like that, by inference, when you have something so completely foreign, so completely unknown that 90% of it doesn't even match any known life form on the planet, that just screams to me of laboratory created bug. And then, before midnight tonight, if you order now, you'll also get fungal antigens that are presented on the outer surface proteins. So the Lyme people will know them as OSP, OSP A, OSP B, OSP C. What is a spirochete? So it's not technically a bacteria. It's lumped in with bacteria, but it's its own phyla. What the heck is that doing with fungal antigens on its surface? That, to me, speaks of like the most bristling armed bioweapon that anybody could
3: create in their wildest imaginations. Another large problem, listening to Dr. McDonald, there are over a 100 varieties of Borrelia. (laughs) And it's a worldwide health problem. Because it's communicable. Uh, Take
2: the tick out of the equation. If you kiss a pretty girl, if you have sex, if you get a blood transfusion, if somebody sneezes on you, sweats on you, whatever,
3: you can get Lyme. Hmm. Yeah, Dr. McDonald, I've watched numerous of his lectures, and he has one in the UK because in the UK, there are health clinics, and people go to these clinics, and there are signs in the window saying, if you are here for a Lyme diagnosis, go elsewhere. We do not know enough about the disease to assist you. And let's destroy that because I'm a farm boy. Annette is
2: a high school graduate. And look at what we've done. And you're telling me a doctor, that's their chosen profession. They've got all of the power of science behind them and they're pushing people away. That means they're covering up for a bioweapon that they do not want exposed.
1: Right. That's something that comes up a lot for me, too, is I ask a lot of guests like, hey, I mean, if you know this, how can we say the system is ignorant? There's just no way. And that's kind of across the board with. GMOs, glyphosate, right. all kinds of issues. It's like if these researchers are able to put it together, you think Monsanto doesn't know? You right. think they're ignorant of what's going on? I mean, we get exactly what they want us to have. That's the same with the school system. It doesn't just suck because nobody has good ideas. It sucks cuz they want it to suck. And uh the other only other thing I wanted to say is with the net story that component that they refused to give the test, they didn't want to give the test. That comes up time and time again. Annette, you recommended I watch this documentary about Lyme victims called Under Our Skin. It is free on Amazon Prime. And that seems to be a part of most of these victims' stories. Doctors don't want to give the test or they tell people that they're crazy or that they're faking for attention and it's just deny, deny, deny. And so I don't know if a government lab is responsible in the end, but the medical system sure acts like it's got something to hide here. Why not just test and diagnose like anything else? Clearly, there's some reason they don't want us to look at Lyme.
3: Well, I was pushed away from getting additional doctors to help me. I was in the Sutter system here in California. That was what my insurance covered. And they wanted to send me to a rheumatologist. There was only one rheumatologist in the Sutter system accepting new patients. He's 71 years old, and he would not accept me as a patient. I mentioned Lyme, and so my doctor said, well, let me send you to an infectious disease doctor none of the doctors would accept me as a patient because they didn't know enough about Lyme to help me. You need a Lyme literate doctor. And I was given a list of those and they're all so far away. It's just too far away to go.
1: And they're being attacked as well, according to this documentary. And it's coming from the insurance companies because the insurance companies control which doctors we see. So if they quarantine away... Lyme literate doctors who are like, hey, we need to treat this. And instead, they go at doctors who say, oh, it's either one of these other things. It's going to be very expensive, lifelong treatments. Um, that's what the doctors in big pharma wants. But the insurance companies, they want these doctors to say, oh, don't worry about it, because the cheaper the doctor, the more likely they're going to be in that insurance network. And that's a dirty trick. Thank capitalism for that. Man, so- We really did cover just a great deal of things today surrounding Lyme, autoimmune issues, antidepressants, antibiotics, antioxidants. Is there any other information to throw out there for people to kind of bring it all full circle and take us home?
3: There's so much more to talk about. It's going to need another show. We didn't even get into the Infectious Disease Society of America and all of the harm they've done. There was 14 doctors on a panel that made the rules for treatment of Lyme disease. Mm, they yes. met one time and kind of disbanded, but they found that nine of them are making money off of the Lyme issue. They're working for the insurance agencies to prevent long-term treatment. In the documentary, Under Our Skin, it takes three years of doxycycline treatment with a pickline line in place to get any result. If you watch the documentary, those couple of people, they were on those antibiotics for three years before they started feeling better. Mm. And the people were the insurance companies dropped them because they said that you shouldn't a ten to fifteen day course should be enough when they know that it takes over a year to treat tuberculosis. But they're trying to limit treatment for Lyme disease. And they're making money in the process by working for the insurance companies. There used to be a law where researchers shared their information. And there was a 1980 law that went into effect where they no longer had to share their information. So these researchers were making money off of their research and they weren't sharing it with other researchers.
1: Right. I think that was when they decided you could patent organisms.
3: Right. Right. It was all in academia, wasn't it, Annette? Yes. Like, you know, a big research institution in a college. Yes. So they were withholding their research findings so they could make money off of it. And patent things like treatment for Lyme. It's just so multifaceted. I've often wondered, you know, after 9-11, what's the next big thing? The next big thing was already in place, and I think it's Lyme disease. Excellent. So let me give a shout out to the ladies that came up with the
2: website Lyme Crime, C-R-Y-M-E. And they can give you the entire sociopolitical background on that. I'm just going to echo what Annette said, is that we are facing the greatest biological undeclared war that I've ever seen. Because I've been at this since the year 2000. I've never seen anything like this. But we have unmasked it. And if anybody wants to make history by helping us find a
3: solution to that, contact us. Boom. And then we've provided you with links to all these videos and various websites that you can include in the show notes. Yes, I will. And if we've left anything out, let us know and we will provide it.
1: Perfect. And Patrick, do remind the people just real quick about your actual work, your website, and your books, just so they can maybe get up to speed so they're even able to jump in and start helping you, because you need this context.
2: The website is VaccineFraud.com. It has all the links of what you need to do to find, you know, my previous books, that ICD-999 is where this all started in 2008, and here we are 10 years later going back to the same source material and saying hey we're back to serum sickness again and so that is the best primer book because everybody asks well what book should i read icd 999 will bring you up to speed there's a link for my books on the website and there's a bunch of other stuff out there that will blow your mind because the world is not what you were told it was
1: amen well said cheers to that. And yes, so many things we left on the table. We didn't even talk about our water system, also known as 50 years of piss water. Oh my God. <laughs> and there's there's so much there as well. So we'll have to do this again, but very cool. Big thanks to both of you. I know it's a marathon session around here, but Annette, I wish you the best with your health and wellness. Patrick, you're doing great stuff. The Little Red Hens, all you guys. You know, keep it up. It does mean a lot. And I think people are going to really appreciate it. So take care out there.
3: Thank you Thanks very much. If anybody has any question, um, add it in the comments and we'll be glad to uh, to respond.
1: Sweet Umbrella Academy Chaos, dear people. What did you think of that? Patrick Jordan and Annette, the little red hen. Wow. Personally, I think it's nice to get into a medical show that isn't just about vaccines or cancer. I know those things are referenced and it is all in the soup, but this one's a little off the beaten path. It's one of those that I call a same but different. (laughs) One of my favorite kind of shows. And of course, I'm not really equipped to verify a lot of these claims. Despite the elevated pedestal some listeners might put me on, I'm just a guy. I ask some all right questions, and I know I don't trust the medical system. I try to keep as much distance from it as I can, but that's it. It's unfortunate that the CDC, the FDA, the AMA, all these corporations can't be trusted because their credibility has been completely compromised, if they even ever had any to begin with. So we have to go to a self-described farm boy for the answers. I don't know if he's 100% right, but I know he cares and his interest is in helping people and getting to the truth. He's not trying to make money off anyone's illness like the machine does. I mean, he said some things that really surprised me, definitely in the Plus show when we got into antioxidants, but I feel that he's good intentioned and what he says makes intuitive sense to me, but I don't know how much my intuition is really worth even. We already know to never take one person's word for it, but I hope you heard a few things that make you want to dig even deeper on your own. And if you liked this one as much as I would suspect, I'm excited about getting Patrick back on to talk about some of those threads we left hanging, like how the elite are protecting themselves, which he said is detailed and complex, and therefore juicy, as far as I'm concerned. I know Patrick considers a lot of what We talked about today to be revolutionary and paradigm-shifting, and he's arrived at these conclusions not only because he's been looking at this work for many years and has written several books, but the revelations came through Annette and her experiences. So as Patrick says, we really do have her to thank. I find it all fascinating, and as I said, I'm obviously skeptical of the medical machine. Surprise, surprise. Conspiracy host doesn't trust authority, and I don't know exactly how far back the nefariousness of it goes, but Patrick has blown my mind more than a few times with his boldness in that regard, and it's very dark, that's true, but it's hard to reach a level of darkness that surprises me anymore, I've heard it all, I don't put anything past Big Farm anymore. I would say watching that documentary Under Our Skin is a good follow-up. It is on Amazon Prime for free. It's one of those conspiracy light type of documentaries where people like us might see it and might be much more equipped to consider the wider and deeper implications of what these people are saying. But you can still watch it with your conventional friends and family. let me know what you think. As always, I'm making my guests free Lifetime Plus members. The Plus member comments are always where the best THC conversations seem to be had. And I'll encourage them to hop in there if they can to talk to you guys. Recently, we've had a lot of guests following up on their shows in the comments. Actually, I think that's phenomenal. I like to see that follow up from THC episodes when it happens. And speaking of Plus, the recent appearance I had on Sam Tripoli's Conspiracies Now, which films in the legendary Comedy Store basement, is out now for his Patreon subscribers, and he was kind enough to let me offer it up to Plus members too. So it is a video, but if you want to see me getting interviewed in probably my favorite building on the planet, it's there for you. Thanks to everyone who came out. I think we might have been one of the very few shows that was free to attend and you left with a joint and (laughs) edible. That was a little something special to me. But I loved doing that interview. Big thanks to Sam for having me. And as for the plus part of today's show with Patrick and Annette, we talked about antibiotics and the cell wall of bacteria, the root of autoimmune issues, inflammation, immunity, and disease antioxidants, like I mentioned, the multi-generational effects of Lyme, trying to keep the infections dormant, and homeopathy. I think there's a little bit more to homeopathy than we are told sometimes. But I just really enjoyed it. I like Patrick's tone and sense of humor, and I know he's not afraid to drop an F-bomb when F-bombs must be dropped. But that said, Join me for a joint session on the 25th this month, just a few days. I believe it's Monday, actually, 7 p.m. Pacific time. And I'll talk to you then. For now, I've done my part. Your move, Plum Island perpetrators, humanity infectors, and tick spit spirochetes. Your fucking move.
0: Have a drink and a smoke. Listen to the cast. We shine a shiny spotlight, put criminals on blast. The pinstripe men of mourning and families of finance. DuPont, Windsor, and Rothschild, the kids don't stand a chance. The kids don't, the kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance. I said the kids don't The kids don't stand The kids don't stand a chance We're looking for the answers To questions never asked So we come to the Cartwood For the higher side chats The pinstripe men of mourning And families of finance Dupont, Windsor, and Rothschild The kids don't stand a chance The kids don't The kids don't stand The kids don't stand a chance I said, the kids don't The kids don't stand The kids don't stand a chance We try to get a glance. We're working on the numbers. Resistance must advance. The pinstripe men of morning and families of finance. DuPont, Windsor, and Rothschild. The kids don't stand a chance. The kids don't. The kids don't stand The kids don't stand a chance I said the kids don't The kids don't stand The kids don't stand a chance The kids don't The kids don't stand The kids don't stand a chance I said the kids don't The kids don't stand The kids don't stand a chance